Good morning. It's my, my joy uh, to serve this church as one of the pastors of Restoration Church. If I've not had a chance to meet you, my name's Nathan. It's our practice to open up the Bible and just walk right through it. We want to let the scriptures serve as our um, authority, and we do that by letting it set the agenda. Uh, we've been walking through the book of Luke, Luke since last September, and we find ourselves, as Whitney just read in Luke 18, and uh, let me pray for us to prepare us for the preaching of God's Word. Father, teach us to pray that we might not lose heart. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Coretta Scott King wrote in the introduction of a book entitled uh, Standing in Need of Prayer, a Celebration of Black Prayer, she wrote, throughout the epic freedom struggle of African Americans, our great sustainer of hope has been the power of prayer. We prayed for deliverance in a dozen African languages, chained to the holds of slave ships on the auction block, in the fields of oppression, and under the lash. We prayed when we followed the drinking gourd on the Underground Railroad. We prayed when our families were torn asunder by the slave traders. We prayed when our homes and churches were burned and bombed and when our people were lynched by racist mobs. So many times it seemed our prayers went unanswered. But we kept faith that one day our unearned suffering would prove to be redemptive. I can't think of a better explanation for our passage this morning. You know, it's interesting, isn't it, that people in general, but strangely even Christians themselves, can sometimes think of prayer as of little significance when it comes to fighting injustices. And yet when considering the Christians of the civil rights movement, for instance, of the 50s and the 60s, they would have told you that prayer was a critical component of their success. And the reason why prayer was so critical to them was because prayer was tied to their hope. And what was their hope? Well, when you listen to the prayers that were oftentimes composed as minor key songs, we find that their prayers of hope were tied directly to their coming home to heaven. Suffering for them was so severe that they prayed for the day of redemption. And so they wrote songs that were prayers, songs that were oftentimes sung, songs like Deep River that prayed, Deep River, my home is over Jordan. Deep River, Lord, I want to cross over into campground. Songs like Swing Low, which prayed, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, coming for to carry me home. Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, coming home, coming for to carry me home. Thomas Dorsey's well-known hymn, a favorite among many during the civil rights era, prays, Precious Lord, take my hand. Lead me on, let me stand. I'm tired. I'm weak. I'm worn. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on through the light. Take my hand, precious Lord, and lead me home. When my way grows dreary, precious Lord, lead me near. When my life is almost gone, at the river I will stand. Guide my feet, hold my hand. Take my hand, precious Lord, and lead me home. Home to heaven. Where justice is served to all of our adversaries and we are at home with the Lord. 
Uh, as Ray, Ralph David Abernathy uh, took up leadership to the FCLC in 1968, he told the New York Post he needed to pray and fast for strength for seven days in order that he might carry on with his task. And so, friends, while we might be tempted to apologize for the role of prayer in the fight of injustices as if it were inactivity, those that have gone before us seem to have stood upon prayer as a rock in order to not lose heart. And the ongoing work of justice in the Lamb. And that's the first thing that we learn from the Lord Jesus here in Luke 18. Uh, We saw last week in Luke chapter 17, this notion of the return of Christ. Jesus promises that he will return, that those days in advance will be like the days of Noah and the days of Sodom. They will be full of rebellion, and yet Christ will come like a flash of lightning in the sky. He will come quickly, and yet Jesus then moves into, if you look at verse 18, you'll notice the first word there is and. So he moves right in. This is a continuation as he speaks to his disciples. And so Jesus knows, friends, that in the midst of our waiting upon his return, when we wait and have to live amidst all of these injustices. We will have adversaries. Jesus knows that we will be tempted amidst the pervasive sufferings. He knows that we will be tempted to lose heart. And so he teaches us how to not lose heart. And what's Jesus' answer? Prayer. Prayer. Take a look at verse 1 again. He says there, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And he speaks this parable of a widowed woman that is pleading with an unjust judge over her adversary. She kept coming to him day and night saying, give me justice against my adversary. Imagine that day and night she's coming. Give me justice against my adversary. And that word justice in the text there means uh, punishment. That's what the word means. She's pleading with the judge to avenge what has been done wrong to her. Justice, we know, is the righteousness of God applied to unrighteousness. Justice is the righteousness of God applied to unrighteousness. And this judge we see in the parable was an unjust judge because he cared nothing about the righteousness of God. You can see in verse 6, that's why Jesus refers to the judge as an unrighteous judge. And for that matter, he didn't even care about the opinions of man. And so this judge is unjust because he didn't care about justice, which is to say he didn't care about righteousness. And yet the widow kept bothering him. He beat her down by her continual coming, it says. And Jesus responds to that parable by saying, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily and so jesus here employs a lesser to greater argument one of his favorite teaching devices and a lesser to greater argument and he says in essence that if a if a jacked up judge that cares little for god or man will give justice to the pleadings of a widowed woman how much more will he give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night in prayer if an unjust judge will serve justice to the adversaries of a woman that he cares nothing about. How much more? How much more will the just judge give his justice to his elect, his people, of whom he sent his son to ransom? If a wicked judge will respond to the pleadings of a widowed woman, how much more 
How much more will the righteous judge who predestined his people from before the foundation of the world, who suffered and hung on a bloody cross to pay for our wrongs, how much more will he give justice to his people that cry to him in prayer amidst the mockings of of their adversaries day and night? How much more, Jesus says. Christian, behold your God. This is what he's like. He hears the prayers of his people as they cry for vengefulness, as it were, against their lives. He hears it. He knows your suffering. He hears your cries. And listen, you're not bothering him when you go to him day and night. I understand that's in the parable, but you're not bothering him. He's a greater judge than the unjust judge. He gladly receives the prayers of his people. As to the question of Uh, experiencing delay and not speedy justice. I'm sure that question is roaming around in your head. It was roaming around in mine. My first question, though, to that, as to the speedy justice, Jesus says, that will come, and it doesn't seem as though it's speedy, my first question to that would be to ask if you have prayed day and night for justice to your adversaries. See, Jesus says, look again at verse 7, and will not God give justice to who? To his elect who cry to him day and night. Beloved, before we put the Lord up on the docket, let's put ourselves up there. Are we, God's elect, marked by prolonged prayers for justice? Or, we're being honest, are we marked by very few prayers for justice? Is prayerlessness combined with disdain and maybe suspicion our posture before the Lord in matters of injustices? Well, regardless, it is a fair question about this notion of the speediness of God coming to administer justice. And so Jesus' explanation, friends, of speedy answers to the prayers of justice is given, listen, it's given from the vantage point of the Lord himself, not from us, not our vantage point. Jesus here recognizes our position, and then he provides from the Lord a promise But it's his vantage point. He speaks. Look at verse 7. He speaks in verse 7 of God giving justice. That's the frame of view. Therefore, from from God's vantage point, from God's vantage point, justice is in fact not delayed. God, we are reminded, dwells in the realm of eternality. Peter tells us that a thousand days are of a day to him. And so when justice is served, friends, it will be served in the fullness of the Lord's timing. And I tell you, it will not be a moment too late. And even if the vantage point were our own experiences, beloved, once we are inside the vantage point of the consummated kingdom of God, we will look back at those injustices and we will agree that those delays in comparison to eternality will be like a moment. Jesus here again is speaking against the backdrop of Luke 17 where he teaches about these disciples where Christ is going to be revealed to all. They're going to be like the days of Noah. They're going to be like the days of Sodom, rampant rebellion, people just not paying any attention to the God, building and planting and the like. And justice, Jesus says, is going to be served to the whole world like that flood. Unless, that is, you flee to the ark of Christ Jesus to escape that punishment. If you don't, beloved, if you don't, friend, if you don't flee to Jesus, if you won't, you will be underneath the waters of eternal death. 
and those waters will come and come swiftly. We learned last week in Luke 17 that Jesus says there won't be any time for you to try to get right with God. Today is the day of salvation. And we find for us, God's people, God's elect, uh, the prayers of God's people that, that, that bring these prayers of justice to the Lord who sit inside of these injustices, injustices for centuries. We find that God will hear those prayers and in this life or on that day, he will quickly avenge the wrongs against his people. Beloved, time and time and time and time and time and time again, we read in Scripture that we should expect great tribulations. Right? The Scripture teaches us in 1 Peter 4 that we should not be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon us as though something strange were happening. Trials and tribulations, they will come. And none of them will escape the speedy justice of God upon the return of the Son of God. Whether our adversaries be unjust deaths, unjust mockings, or unjust treatment, all of those injustices will be avenged in the end. Nothing escapes because God is the God of justice and he never does wrong. It's not for our, right, Romans 12 teaches, not for us to repay, but it's for the Lord to repay, Romans 12. He will answer. And from the vantage point of God and eternality, it will come and it will come quickly. And yet in the meantime, from our own experience, there will be a delay. Look again at verse 1. That's the whole point of this passage. Jesus recognizes that there's going to be a delay between his going and his coming. He knows that we are going to be tempted to lose heart, that justice will be served. We remember, remember a few months back when we looked at that passage about the thief coming in the night. Jesus recognized there's going to be this delay and we don't know when it's going to be. He's going to come like a thief in the night. Jesus recognizes there's going to be a delay. That's why he told this parable. He recognizes there's going to be a delay. And so take heart, beloved, in four things from this passage. Take heart that he, one, will avenge all that have wronged us. In unrighteousness. Take heart, secondly, that when the punishment comes to our adversaries, that punishment will come quickly. And third, take heart that he knows that you and I are experiencing a delay. He knows that. He is aware of that. And fourth, take heart that he makes provision for that delay in the vessel of prayer. He gives us a provision in the delay in prayer. Beloved, prayer is the candle that allows you to see the face of God through the darkness of your adversaries. Prayer is the candle that allows you to see the face of God through the darkness of your adversaries. Prayer is the way that we don't lose heart as we wait upon the return of Christ to deal with the injustices of our life. Therefore, listen guys, therefore, if, if you do not pray, do not be surprised if you lose heart. Restoration Church, as one of your pastors, this is one of my great concerns for us. While this is not true of all of us, too many of us are not a prayerful people. We are marked, this church is, and we, this church is marked by its allegiance to the Word of God. I praise God for that. Your time in the Word, your interest in the Word, your study of the Word. This church is marked by service to one another. I praise God for that. Jesus even says that's the way in which we will be marked. 
love for one another. You excel in that. And yet, beloved, too often when I press in and ask how you are doing and how your prayer life is, too often I hear answers of struggle in prayer. So, for instance, if we have a night, let's say, of teaching on, let's say, racial injustices or some kind of other injustice, I praise God, it will be well attended. That teaching will be well attended. And yet, if we have a night of prayer for injustices, I'm afraid that it would likely be sparsely attended. And I say this, beloved, not to condemn you, but to warn you, to warn us. Jesus says that prayer is the way that we don't lose heart. We have to learn how to excel in prayer. Jesus says that we do not lose heart by praying. And the saints of old that have walked through so much suffering, you read the saints of old through all of the centuries of suffering, no matter what the suffering might be, you find time and again them giving themselves to prayer. And so may we learn from Christ as Lord. May we learn from our brothers and sisters down through the space of time. And may we not lose heart by our praying. And of course, there's all different kinds of ways to pray, right? We pray individually. We pray in twos or threes. We pray in small groups. We pray as a church as we've done this morning. But I pray, this is my prayer for us as a church, that this would be a moment for us, that we would look back to Luke 18.1 and say that was the moment in which we as a church learn how to be a prayer full people as a whole. Let this be a moment that we commit ourselves to pray so that we don't lose heart. There's too much around us to have us to lose heart. Waiting, beloved, is active. Waiting is active. And one way that we actively wait upon the return of Christ is by praying. Jesus teaches us, right, abide in me that I would abide in you, that you might bear much fruit for apart from me you can do nothing. And so one of the ways that we abide in Christ is by praying. And so practically, let's get real practical for a moment. This week, I'm calling us to make prayer an important part of your personal devotions. Labor to make it a habit. Like 1 Thessalonians 5.17 calls us to pray without ceasing. Learn to make it a habit. And maybe for some of you, you might need to start this recommitment to prayer that you might not lose heart, that we might not lose heart. Maybe your first action is just to repent and confess to God of your prayerlessness. Maybe some of you need to recognize that you now see that prayerlessness is functional atheism. And you just need to bring that to the Lord and say, you're sorry for having tried to do so much without his strength, as is evidenced by your prayerlessness. So maybe that's where you need to start. And and beloved, if that's you, listen, receive the forgiveness of Christ. He's happy and glad to forgive you of all of your sins. Receive the forgiveness of Christ. And then from that, Then begin to read the word, but don't just read the word. Find a phrase, find a word, find an idea, and then pray that back to the Lord. In other words, use the word as kindling to inflame your heart for prayer back to God. So when you're walking, when you're driving in this beautiful weather, find times to pray and give thanks to God. Live before the face of God everywhere you go. When you watch the news and you're tempted towards dismay, Pray to the Lord to avenge the wrong that you see and believe that he hears it and he will answer it. In your marriages or uh, with your roommates, in your discipling groups, don't just tell people that you'll pray for them. Pray with them right then. Don't just say, I'll pray for you. 
It's okay if you do that, by the way. I don't want to make everybody feel like they have to do it right now. But let's more often learn to do it right now. We could just go ahead and pray. In community groups, don't view prayer as that thing you kind of do to kind of get things started so you can get to the real work of studying the Word. I've done that. But see prayer as part of the important work of growing your love for God and love for neighbor and waiting upon Jesus. Corporately, when we gather as a church, don't check out in the prayers that are being offered. You'll notice there's not only that big prayer, that the pastoral prayer that is often offered, there's all kinds of other prayers offered. See yourself as part of that prayer and say amen. Beloved, listen to this. Jesus died so as to give us access to the throne room of God. That's why he died. One of the most important reasons he died. So many of us are beginning to lose heart because we aren't regularly going into the throne room of the Father to plead with him. We're not praying day and night. And so as you wait, as we wait, and we are surrounded by so many injustices, pray by the work of the Son, through the ministry of the Spirit, into the throne room of God. And ask Him to come and to come soon. And ask Him to bring justice with Him. And know that He will. And when He comes, beloved, will He find faith on the earth? That's the next verse. If you take there, take a look there at verse 8. When he comes, will he find faith on the earth? This is a rhetorical question that leads us into that next passage. Take a look there as we move into the passage a little bit further down. Here we're from verses 9 down to 14. Here Jesus now transitions from this notion of prayer to now two people that are praying so as to illustrate what faithful praying looks like and doesn't look like. So in verses 9 to 14, we have two different people with two different faiths. Two different trusts. We've seen already that faith prays, but how do they pray? We know we need to pray for injustices. We know that we need to do that. Jesus has taught us that. But what are we trusting in as we pray and wait? Verse 9. He also told them this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So here Jesus is correcting the idea of a faith that trusts in self to be made righteous at the day of his return. Trust in itself. So he's going to help us see how a faith like that is actually bankrupt. Even though it might posture as though it's faithful. And he's going to use prayer to illustrate that. Take a look at verse 11. He tells the parable of a Pharisee who stands by himself. He's standing by himself because he trusts in himself. And he goes on to list his spiritual resume there. We might imagine that the Pharisee imagines an audience with God wherein God asks him, why should I let you into my kingdom? And the Pharisee says, in essence, as we look down through the passage, well, listen, I'm better than all the really bad people. Isn't it interesting, by the way, that we always find ways to compare ourselves to the worst people? I'm better than all the really bad people. And I fast more than what's demanded of the law. Instead of fasting once a year, I fast twice a week. And I give one-tenth of every penny that I make. Just last week, God, I put a penny in the, I put my check in the basket for $1,121.42, right at a tenth. My friend, it makes sense that if your faith is based upon your own performance, that you'd be a jerk. Right? It makes sense that you would at least think yourself better than others. Faith means to trust. Every time I read the word faith in the Bible, that may be helpful to you, I always see the word trust. That's what it means. 
I wish somebody would make a translation that would do that. But anyway, faith means to trust. And when your faith is built upon your trusting your own good works to make you right in the sight of God, then it only makes sense that this would then feed your arrogance, feed your pride. That's what this Pharisee is marked by. And let's go ahead and acknowledge this fictional Pharisee that Jesus uses to make his point. Let's just go ahead and acknowledge that he might be right. Let's assume that everything that the Pharisee prays is true, that he did all of these things. Just try and think about the amount of discipline and sacrifice it would take to live this way. Once again, we would understand why he would treat others with contempt because he sees the other folks that aren't doing that. He's like, well, I'm better than them. I gave more money than they did, right? We might even consider why this guy would think that the Lord owed him something. See, this faith that Jesus is representing in the Pharisee, this kind of faith, the relationship is more accurate to describe it as an employer-employee relationship. Not father and son, but employer and employee. We might imagine, you know, the, the Pharisee working hard all week as an employee of the father's business, as it were, and he comes up and says, listen, I'm not like all the other employees you got running around here. I worked hard all week. So listen, pay up. Where's my paycheck? And listen, if the employer didn't pay up in the way that the employee felt like he deserved, what would happen? He would get angry, right? Maybe so angry that he might want to crucify his boss. And so how about this even? Let's take this parable and let's push it back up into the one we just looked at in the previous verses. If you approach life in the same way this Pharisee does, you would expect God to owe you something for your good behavior, to give you a good life because you were really religious. And so because you've done all these things for God, you expect him to kind of give you a comfortable life, sort of like the prosperity gospel teachers, right? You, I've done all these good things, and so I expect now God to give me all this good stuff, happiness and comfort and success and all this. Therefore, when that doesn't happen and suffering enters your door, which it always does, it would only make sense that you would then lose heart. Because the nature of your relationship with God is transactional. You're more moral than all the worst people. You pay 10% of your money like a God tax. You pray and fast twice a week, and yet you unfairly maybe one day lose your job. You seemingly, maybe indiscriminately, you get cancer. Maybe someone you love gets cancer. Maybe a school teacher flunks you for some counterculture opinions that you write about. In other words, life treats you unrighteously, unjustly, as it often does. Can't you see how this person, this Pharisee, that we read about here, can't you see how that person would lose heart, lose faith? Well, they trusted themselves to earn God's favor. And so they walk away. The reality is, friend, that God doesn't exist. Or maybe they walk away and here, maybe they, maybe they treat others like they're better than everyone else. If you're doing this like this Pharisee here in this passage, this kind of faith, friend, does not present you blameless before the presence of God. I want to make that so clear. If you, if you lose, if you take anything away, listen to that. This kind of faith that trusts in self to make itself righteous before the throne room of God, that kind of faith will not present you blameless before the presence of God. 
And the reason why is because you trust yourself for righteousness. And friend, no matter how good you are, you are not holy. I know I'm not. What's sad is, is this kind of pharisaical religion that Jesus responds or speaking of here. This describes most world religions. Here's a list of rules from God. Work hard enough at it and God will forgive you and maybe let you in. And Jesus says, this is not the way of the kingdom. This is not saving faith. And so you now should be asking, right? Well, Nathan, what is? If it's not that, what is it? Take a look at verse 13. We get a tax collector. So a Pharisee is positioned against a tax collector. So here, a tax collector would have been a, to- a cultural reject. They would have seen as kind of selling their people out. A cultural reject. Jesus sticks a cultural reject into the... Similar to what he did. The, remember the Good Samaritan? Remember that guy? Jesus loves to take people that they think are bad and stick them into the story as good examples. Tax collector, verse 13, a cultural reject. He won't even, when he goes to pray, he won't even lift his eyes to heaven. And instead, he beats his breast in humility and prays, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Time and again. The Pharisee stands with pride with, before the throne of God and pleads all of his accomplishments. The tax collector, on the other hand, stands in humility before the throne room of God and confesses his sin. And pleads for mercy from God. Which one of these truly believes? Which one of these truly has faith? Which one of these won't lose heart as they await the return of Christ? Which one will it be? Which one of us will be able to stand before Christ on that faithful day? Which one of these examples, not just us, which one of these examples here will stand before Christ on that faithful day and stand forgiven, justified, clean? Which one? Well, to the shock and awe of those Pharisees as they listened to this teaching, it wasn't them. It was the tax collector. It was the cultural reject. And we should ask, why? Why is that the case? Look at verse 14. Here's Jesus' answer. Because everyone, underline that word everyone, 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 everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted that's a promise folks it's a promise this is a law from god no different than the law of gravity or the law of thermodynamics you can't get around it you can choose to deny it just like you can choose to deny gravity but you've got to pay the consequences if you plead in other words your own position or practices before the lord to make you holy even if you say you believe in jesus but you're really trusting in yourself your faith is functionally in yourself And you will not be able to stand on that last day. You will be humbled, as Jesus says, on the day when the Son of Man is revealed or when you die. But if you're honest, if you confess your sin to God, you plead instead of instead of pleading your own works, you plead entirely the mercy of God for your sins. If instead of appealing to your own work, you acknowledge your sin and you appeal, listen, to the person and the work of Christ. Who humbled himself on the cross to atone for your sins. You plead Jesus' mercy to be applied to you 
If you have faith like that, trust like that, Jesus says you will go home justified. That is to say, you will be go, go home and counted as righteous. Counted as though you never sinned. That's merciful. You know, it's interesting when you read that passage, verse 14, it's about as counter DC cultural as anything else you'll read in the Bible, isn't it? I mean, think about our, our city is, is, is marked by its people appealing to their job description, their security clearance, their influence to justify what is evidently lacking in their hearts as they go on to treat others with contempt. And yet Jesus says that you want to meet someone that is physically operating inside the confines of the metaphysical laws of the universe? You want to meet somebody like that? Well, then find someone that doesn't posture for any position, is quick to confess their needs, their sins, doesn't play the game of religiosity and trusts the Lord for righteousness, is quick to plead the mercy of God. And instead of thinking of themselves as better than others, because Christ has been so merciful to them, they in the same way are merciful to others. They love their neighbor as themselves. And they then are justified. When you meet somebody like that, there, friend, you found someone that is gliding along the grains of the universe and is justified before the one true and living God. And so listen, we got to be clear about this, right? You, you could have a Bible degree, 20 years of pastoral service, and enough theological savvy to destroy a Jesuit priest, a Muslim scholar, or a philosophical atheist in a debate. But listen, if you do not understand that apart from Christ, even with all of those accomplishments, you deserve the anger of God for your sin. And if you don't understand, uh, you need to plead the mercy of God entirely to forgive you. Then you don't actually have faith. Well, actually, you do have faith, I should say, but it's in yourself. It's not in Jesus. And Jesus really is just void. You don't really need him because you're pleading yourself. Which might explain maybe why you treat others with contempt. As an example of this, let me revisit the topic of my introduction from this morning. Think again about the experience of black Americans under Jim Crow. Who were left sometimes to start their own churches. Because other Christians wouldn't allow them to take the Lord's Supper with them. Those people, those so-called Christians. They were treating another set of people with contempt, because they thought themselves better than them. When in reality, those people were the Pharisees in this story. They exalted themselves, and so Jesus says they will be humbled. As opposed to those who humbled themselves, confessed their sins, thought of all others, not just the ones like them, all others as better than themselves, because Christ had served them mercy for their sin. Those are the ones that went home justified. They were the ones that had faith. And presumably, they never lost faith as they waited for the return of Christ amidst those injustices in prayer. Because, again, they didn't trust themselves. They trusted Jesus. They trusted Jesus. They were justified, right? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They humbled himself before the throne room of God, and he gladly gave them mercy. He counted them righteous in Christ. Beloved, this is what it looks like to really believe, to have faith. Persevering prayer that humbles itself by confessing sin, pleading mercy from Christ, serving others in like manner, waiting in prayer and hope. This is the childlike faith that Jesus wants from us. See, our passage for today ends with the disciples 
apparently completely missing this idea of humble faith by their trying to keep infants from Jesus. Now, maybe the disciples were like those Pharisees in thinking that children didn't rise to the level of importance that Jesus was worthy of. We don't know. And so whatever it is, the disciples are trying to keep these children away from Jesus. And I love this. Jesus rebukes them. (laughs) And he illustrates humble faith, simple trust, when he says, let the children come to me. Kids, you hear that. Amelia, Maggie, all these others. Let the children come to me. That's what Jesus is like. Let the children come to me. Let the children come to me. And then he goes on to conclude, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Why is he saying this? Well, friend, children instinctively trust their parents on the whole. (laughs) Children instinctively trust their parents. Their parents feed them, they clothe them, they protect them, they provide for them. And the children instinctively follow them everywhere they go. Children don't always understand why their parents do this or that, but they still will get in the car when it's time to go. Most of the time. That's what Jesus is pulling out here. This instinct to trust. That's what childlike faith is. Instinct to trust. And so in our world, even though injustices pervade, those that have childlike faith, they they have faith. They believe. They they trust. Why? Because they trust the God that did not spare his only son, but gave him up for them all. How can we not graciously trust him for all things? And so we pray, we wait, we cry, we wait, we pray. And we do it all over again. Not understanding. I love that phrase from Paul. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. That's childlike faith. I don't get it, but I'm going to trust you. Because you sent your son. And they don't fear that day when Jesus returns because justice was served for them on the day of redemption when Christ went to the cross to atone for the sins of all those that trust him. And that resurrection promises to give them new life. They've received mercy on that day and so they wait for the fullness of their redemption. They trust, they pray, they hope, they believe. They instinctively trust with childlike faith. This is what it means to believe. And so as I conclude here, Take a look back at the passage. Here you have, as the kind of heroes of these stories, a widowed woman, a tax collector, and children. These are the ones of whom Jesus looks to. What otherwise might be considered the kind of cultural rejects of the day. That's not to say that you can't be in favor with man, but the point is, is Jesus is trying to illustrate this humble faith. Humble believing. When Jesus returns, may he find faith in the earth? Oh, I believe that he will. He paid for them. May he find it amongst us as we pray without ceasing, pleading the mercy of God and coming to him with instinctive trust, waiting for that day in which he will reveal and we will all finally cross over the Jordan and be home together. That's the day we wait for. And that's a day, beloved, that's coming. So may we pray for it, may hope in it, and may we serve others in the same mercy that we have received. And if you're not a Christian friend, my encouragement to you would be to plead the mercy of Christ. If you want to talk about more, please come and talk to me. Let me pray for us in conclusion.
And I'm going to pray Thomas Dorsey's song, as I think it's so appropriate. Take our hand, precious Lord, and lead us home. Precious Lord, take our hand. Lead us on. Let us stand. God, we're tired. We're weak. We're worn. Through the storm, through the night, lead us on, God, through the night. Take our hand, precious Lord. And lead us home. And I add to that, Jesus, come quickly. Please, come quickly. And when you come, may you find faith here. I ask it for your name and your glory, your renown. In Jesus' name.